0: So when you hear the word reparations, what do you think? And I mean, if you're like us, it's probably something you sort of thought about in theory, but realize there's so much to understand that you kind of want to hide. You know, it's not an easy word with an easy answer or a clear path forward, nor is it uncomplicated.
1: And that's why, fortunately, we love to get complicated and messy on this podcast. And so that's why we're thrilled today to have Cameron Witten, the CEO of the racial justice nonprofit Brown Hope and co founder of the Black Resilience Fund, on today to talk about reparations, HR 40, Portland, and answer all the questions you may have thought of or even some that you have not about reparations. Welcome to the Dear White Women Podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts with a brand new book, Sarah and me, Sasha.
2: Would you please introduce yourselves for our audience? Happy to. Thank you for having me here today. My name is Cameron Witten. My pronouns are all of them. And first and foremost, I am a human, shocking enough. I am American, I am a neighbor. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm part of the nonprofit community in Portland, founder of racial justice nonprofit called Brown Hope. But my story in Portland actually began as a homeless youth, 18 years old in Portland, and dealing with being a black queer kid, living on the streets of a really big city, and yeah, becoming an activist through Occupy Wall Street, through the Black Lives Matter movement. And today, you know, being a part of this community, helping to put solutions for, for healing, both with COVID, with systemic racism, and all the other big challenges that face our city and communities across this country. So thank you for having me here today.
1: I could just derail this conversation
0: right away <laughs> and dive into the stuff that you just <laughs> talked about. My head just is like so many
1: questions, so many. But I'm really curious about this topic that you came to us with because it's something that's coming up in society. And this is the idea of reparations.
2: Reparations. Yes.
1: Right. And I've heard HR 40 mentioned. Misasha is way more into like the legal and like governmental side of things. So I'm coming at it as a total novice. Right. And a lot of us are not familiar with what it actually is or what it does. So can you help me level set? Like, tell us what level HR 40 entails, what it's proposing, what relief it's offering.
2: Of course, happy to. And first I'll say, all of us, we have access to the internet, to the library. A lot of this information is public. Go to congress.gov, look at organizations like Human Rights Watch. There's a lot of great information about this bill. It has been introduced, I think, since 1989. So this is something that has been uh, advocated and pushed for for a very long time, and reading from congress.gov, this bill establishes a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African-Americans. This commission shall examine slavery and discrimination in the colonies and the United States from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies. So this is really critical because one thing that we commonly say is that Slavery is America's original sin, and that is because this country, from the White House as a building itself, to the house where the Constitution and the Bill of Rights was written, were built by slaves. If you look at all of the major institutions, whether that's been our infrastructure, whether that's been businesses, whether it's been our governments, these were built upon the bodies and blood and labor of enslaved black. People. We have never had a real reckoning around true forgiveness for slavery. And when we talk about forgiveness. This isn't just about sending a Hallmark card saying, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> we know, <laughs> when we talk about reparations, reparations can apply to anything. It is a word, which means to repair. And we've seen other governments, other acts of injustice that have happened across this world where reparations have been implemented. South Africa, they had a truth and reconciliation process for apartheid. Germany, there are still Holocaust survivors and Jewish survivors of Nazi Germany, about half a million folks who still receive pensions from the German government today. Just this year, the country of Australia enacted a multi-hundred million dollar reparations bill to provide direct payments to Aboriginal people. Even the US, Ronald Reagan, you know, passed a reparations bill to provide compensation to folks displaced by Japanese internment. So we have seen reparations enacted in different contexts, but we've not seen it in terms of the biggest number of folks who were exploited for their labor that directly led to wealth creation for the dominant by population race in the United States, which are white Americans. We have never seen a real account of what the cost was and what we can do to address the wealth gap that's been created because not just slavery itself, but as this commission talks about, all the types of discrimination that followed immediately after not just happened after slavery, but happened in substitution of slavery. Slavery begat other forms of discrimination that continue to expand racial inequities in our country. We need healing. If our country is really going to deliver our promise of, you know, freedom, justice for all, that does mean that we have to have healing for every person because of the crimes that have happened enabled by our United States government.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I really want to talk about the positioning, like the difference between the international communities that you just mentioned, right? Because it's not a new concept, reparations. And yet in the United States, Compared to these other countries that you mentioned, there is a huge level of resistance to even study the need for it. Yeah. And so, while I also want to to talk to us about the importance of it, how do you think it needs to be positioned in the United States, given the history that you just mentioned? That like right now we're not yeah we're not even willing to talk about studying it.
2: Yeah, and I will be honest. I'm coming from it with a very hopeful and optimistic perspective, as MLK said the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, that is not just a talking point. I believe that it is uh, grounded in truth and fact and reality. We are going to have a reckoning when it comes to this country's racist history. And it is extremely telling, the fact that, you know, our first Black president, you know, said when he was elected that he does not support reparations, you know, in all fairness to him, he said, because it's, politically unfeasible, and it was true, you know, about 70% of Americans have been polled saying that they oppose the idea of reparations, but now we have elected our latest white president who now supports reparations, and the reason why this context is so important is because we have to be thoughtful about how we are approaching this conversation. When we talk about reparations, this doesn't mean one thing. And if we just talk about reparations in the context of slavery, folks are going to immediately go to, well, I didn't own slaves. I've never met a slave in my life. Why does this matter to me? But if you start talking about things that have happened within recent human memory, also things that are literally happening today, housing discrimination, everything that we saw with the uh, what happened with the GI Bill, everything that we've seen happen with uh, subprime loans and predatory lending. And our ongoing issue with uh, communities that are living unbanked and unable to accumulate wealth or the fact that black Americans own less than 2% of farms in the United States, less than 1% of all rural land in the United States. These are things that are happening today. And it's much easier for folks to engage and say, we have to do something about that. And so You and I, you know, us really smart and educated people focused on those issues, we know that when we're talking about these issues, we're also talking about slavery. For other folks, you have to find ways to connect these issues in a more deliberate manner. And so I do believe that as we're talking about reparations today, we are going to need to put to the forefront the actual racial inequities that are persisting today and find ways to have repairs for that. The best example would be Evanston, Illinois, which was the first city that got a lot of you know, public attention because it said, you know what, we're not going for the federal government. We're going to do reparations work today. Evanston doesn't have slaves. The model that they used for their reparations was looking at the war on drugs and looking at the fact that there were real racial inequities with the folks who were being arrested and found guilty for uh, low level drug offenses and said, well, we're gonna start taxing marijuana and using the revenue from that to pay for reparations specifically because of how the war on drugs harmed the black community. Those types of things are gonna move much faster than what H.R. 40 is going to do around the conversation around slavery. And for me, it's a both and conversation. The ability for us to move both solutions, like uh, using the legalization of marijuana to repair from the impacts of the war on drugs, is also allowing us to do reparations work around the injustices caused by slavery. We
0: discuss reparations in my house a fair amount, because the question that always comes up is, what does it look like? Because, you know, my husband who is black is like, well, is like in reparations, which we need, is it money in a bank account, right? Is it land? Is it tax relief? I think a lot of people have a hard time figuring out like, where does the money come from for reparations? And, or is it money at all? in your vision, what is it? What does it look like? Or maybe that's a meaning of life question that there is no answer to at this point,
2: but I'm super curious to hear your thoughts. It's a great question. And honestly, a big a little tug in the cheek, but it is like shopping at Burger King. It is have it your way. There is no correct path for reparations. Let us look at every option on the table. And that is key. Not every single person is impacted by every injustice the same way. And we have to be looking at the realities in our country. And we know that there are inequities when it comes to education, when it comes to housing, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to jobs and the economy. We can look at reparations in all of those contexts. Those are all meaningful. And I do believe that that's what we're going to have to do. Universities, they're not going to be like, well, how do I as a university do direct payments to Black people? No, they'll say, what can we do to have scholarships? What can we do to make sure that we have ethnic studies and doing the diversity programs and making sure that our staffing is reflective of our student demographic? That's what universities are going to do for hospitals. They're gonna be looking at, well, what are we doing to look at you know a life expectancy? And how are we helping to create specific you know, outreach programs? And how are we making sure that we have uh, economic relief programs for people so they can avoid medical debt? So every different type of institution is gonna look at how it works and how it can start to incorporate equity and reparations into their work. But we cannot ignore this really tough conversation when it comes to direct cash transfer. And we have to have that conversation because that is literally where the basis of slavery was founded in. Slavery was a profit motive. (laughs) Slave owners owned people that they were able to develop wealth from. And also in Washington DC, Slave owners received reparations (laughs) because even though slaves were emancipated in Washington, D.C., they were still seen as property. And so those slave owners in Washington, D.C., they received money from the United States because they lost their property, which were people. And let's also not ignore the fact that even after the Emancipation Proclamation, that happened about the same exact time as the Homestead Act. And so, you know, I'm an economics major. And so I love talking about this type of stuff because even though slave owners lost their property of enslaved Black people during the Civil War, at the same time, we had the Great Migration. We had Manifest Destiny. We had the Homestead Act. And so there was 1.6 million Americans at the same time this was happening who were literally just moving out West and getting 160 acres of property, only 6,000 black folks. Because again, even after the Emancipation Proclamation, we still weren't citizens up in, you know some places like Kentucky, I think it was like 1970 that they finally ratified the 14th Amendment, but only 6,000 black Americans were able to benefit at all from the Homestead Act. So let's be real honest that even slave owners who lost slaves because of the Civil War, they were able to still get compensation from the US government because of Manifest Destiny. And so we're continuing to build wealth even as enslaved folks were freed. And then of course, after that, became part of the peonage system where now they're sharecroppers, now they're in debt and literally working for generations never able to recover from debt even though they're doing labor. So even after slavery, as we say, was illegal on paper, slavery was still legal because people's labor were were being exploited without being able to, to develop even a penny of wealth. So yes, it is a very tough conversation to have because it is very easy for people to say, well, I am not the one who developed, who got that wealth, who exploited, those people. So why do I have to talk about it? But we have to. We can't ignore the facts. And for me, it is critical that we think about it in a systemic way. And I think that's one of the hardest things right now because we don't have HR 40. We've not actually had a thoughtful approach to this conversation. It has led to just, you know, scattershot conversations where people automatically think if we start talking about reparations, we're pointing fingers at a random white person on the street and saying, this is your fault, you have to open your wallet and pay up. I don't think that's what anybody is actually thinking of when we say reparations. We're talking about systemic solutions. And when you look at systemic solutions, you're looking at where is the systemic concentration of wealth. And that means that a lot of white folks who are poor, they're not gonna have to worry about, what they have to give up for reparations. We're going to be looking at the vehicles of wealth that have now become so wealthy and so powerful that even poor white people are being oppressed. How can we hold those vehicles accountable for being a part of the solution? And so the idea of reparations actually has a lot of opportunity to level the playing field for people across all different racial identities and really help us to evaluate this current toxic wealth inequality in this country and ensure that we have prosperity for all people. So I have a lot of hope that as we continue to talk about reparations, not just from what we assume that it might be, not just speaking from a place of fear, but actually looking at possibilities with imagination and with courage that we can craft a solution that a vast majority of Americans would get behind. And I can't wait to be part of that conversation.
0: Oh, I love so much about what you just said. I mean, I'm having a hard time expressing all the parts that I love about it. But let me just start with the historical component, because I particularly love that. And I think that we tend to think about history in, you know, sections, right? Slavery and then, you know, Homestead Act and then redlining. You know, I, I think that but when we look at actually how they intersect time wise and how this has all continued and how that the direct line through that is slavery and the effects of slavery, then that makes the argument so powerful, right? When we look at all of the effects in 2021, right? From decisions and systems that have been in place for such a long time, since the founding of our country. And I think that your point as to the systemic issues and the systems that need to change and be responsible is really crucial. Because, I mean, when we hear people or I've heard people, you know, talk about it, like, well, why should we be concerned about reparations? Because, right, like, I don't own slaves. Slavery was in the past. We don't have slaves anymore. And isn't that more of a divisive question than not? But what I'm hearing you say is actually, like, how we are right now is more divisive. And so in order to fix these divides, we this reckoning is important. So, I hope I got that correct because I was busy trying to parse all the knowledge bombs that you were dropping like into one cohesive thing.
2: Yeah, you know, it is a hard question to answer. What I need to say right now in this moment, we are a country that's divided. And it hurts my heart. You know, we just had the 20-year anniversary of 9/11 and I remember I was in 5th grade. When 9-11 happened, and even as a fifth grader, I guess I was 10 years old at the time, I felt the shift in this country. And it has felt even at a time when we definitely had differences, you know, in 2001, this country continued to go into a direction where we're more, more locked into the narrow vision of our own identities and have fear for the other. And so this country has continued to be divided. We've definitely seen in the last four years with the menace that took over the White House, the way that more and more divides were continued to be fueled, the idea to be afraid of the other, the idea that you should probably get some guns and threaten and take violent acts against the other. People are now dying because of political division. This is something that we really didn't see since the Civil War. The fact that now your political beliefs are being legitimately used for warfare in our streets in this country. It is absolutely harrowing. We can't ignore that. And so it is so hard for me to hear, talking about the reality of how divided we are today and to hear somebody say that just having this conversation that is focused on solutions, that is focused on healing and restoration, that is going to lead us to a more divided place than we were before? I don't think so. I think that's our fear. I think that's our hearts feeling the trauma that we already have of the division of today. And that's the issue. Like One of my favorite people and really the framework that our organization, Brown Hope, focuses on is about healing and Somebody who I've taken a lot of inspiration from is uh, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who's the first ever uh, Surgeon General in the state of California, who did a lot of great work looking at ACEs, first childhood experiences, and looking at trauma. And one of the things that she said was that, when I just found out all this body of work about how childhood trauma is leading to all these big issues in our country that we can solve if we just address trauma in the early stages of life. And once I put out this research, nobody wanted to hear me. No one wanted to work with me, even though it's so clearly proven in the data. And it made me ask myself, is it because we prefer to be sick? Is it because the second that we have to look in the mirror and see that we have to change we have to grow our body starts attack, goes on the attack, goes on the defensive. You wanna fight, you wanna run away, you wanna freeze. And I think that is also what's happening right now where we are so divided, it is easier just to ignore it and it feels safer that we know that we're divided. Let's not challenge that sleeping dragon, but we can't live that way. That is a state of inertia that is gonna to continue to feed into the sickness that has led to where we are today. And that's what I talk about when I talk about racism. I talk about racism, not because it impacts just me as a Black person. Racism impacts every single person in this country. Racism is harming white folks. There's a harm of your heart and of your whole soul when you have your neighbors who are suffering right there, and you do not know, you're ignorant of, you don't understand, or you do not care about their suffering that is speaking to a harm and a pain that is in your heart. And I have compassion. I feel for folks who deal with that and we have to have healing for all people. And so I do believe strongly that we can heal and it's gonna take effort from each one of us. It's gonna take a level of vulnerability that we as a country are not used to having. or used to talking about rugged individualism that we can do it all on our own, that we have to be colorblind, that we have to pretend that we don't have differences in order to still be a diverse country. Let's just find a way to actually be real. And instead of looking at somebody else and assuming that they're a threat to us, assuming that we're, we have more differences than we have things in common, let's actually just be vulnerable enough to have tough conversations, to not walk away from each other, and see where we can go from there. I think that we can do it. And I do think that this country will be better off by looking at how to bridge the divides.
1: Thank you for sharing that. You know, as you were speaking, it made me wonder, and you shared at the very beginning, you know, your personal background, how does your identity, and you said as a black queer youth who was unhoused for a period of time, like how did compassion, you know, how did that shape who you are today in this work that you're doing?
2: That is a great question, Sarah. And, you know, my story was a story of resilience. And I can think of too many times in my life where I have had to face that wall of of pain, fear, and suffering. And it starts in my childhood. You know, I had, you know, come from a family with my mom and dad, who were fortunate to work at the post office. So to be able to be a part of a union, to have you know good wages and good benefits. My parents made a tough decision to move away from where the rest of my non-nuclear family lives in New Jersey, because they wanted their kids to escape the cycle of poverty. But even with that, you can't escape the cycles of racism and oppression. And you know, our you know, to be a Black person, you're talking about living within a family that is only three or four generations removed from slavery. And so even the Black family structure carries these haunted phantoms of slave mentality. And so I, like many Black folks, have experienced a lot of trauma and abuse from our parents. For me, it was my father who was abusive emotionally and physically. And that was normal. You know, I remember even as a kid hearing, well, I'm so much easier on you than my father was. And if only you knew what I went through. And I know that is continuing to be built upon the trauma that Black people have had, being stripped away from our ancestral roots, being raised to be To know that part of your life experience is to be beaten, is to be shamed and threatened and intimidated. And then you pass it on from generation to generation because that's the only thing that you know. So that was really hard as a kid. And so when I was 18, I knew that I had to leave Virginia because I grew up my entire childhood learning how to be invisible. And by the time I turned 18, I didn't have a single hope for my future because I didn't think that I deserved one. So I left. And I had no idea where I was going to go. I actually never heard of Oregon before. The only thing that I knew about the state was the Oregon Trail video game. So the only thing I looked forward to was Jackie dying of dysentery. <laughs> Sorry, Jackie. <laughs> but this my very first experience in Oregon, it was harrowing. I had a friend who brought me to his dad's house in Albany. Albany is just about a two-hour drive outside of Portland. And that very first night that we were at his dad's house, we were asked to leave because the dad was uncomfortable having a black man in his house. And now I'm just a kid from suburban Virginia and I never in my short existence had ever had anyone look at the color of my skin and blatantly deny me something as basic as housing. I laughed. I didn't realize that that could be a thing that that happened. And I laughed because it felt so absurd. Like, oh, I guess there are racist people in Oregon. And now I've been in Oregon for 12 years and learned the truth of this state. And Oregon is really unique and a unique place to talk about reparations because Oregon was not a slave state. And the way that Oregon became a slave state was very interesting because when it was becoming a state in the 1850s, they decided, you know what, we're going to completely avoid this conversation around slavery by becoming a whites-only state. And when they voted to constitutionalize Oregon as a state, the settlers in Oregon, by a bigger margin than voting to become a state, wanted Oregon to be a whites-only state. And so <laughs> one of the first things the Constitution said, no Negroes, no Chinamen, no mulattos can live in this state. So Even though Oregon was a slave free state, it was that way literally because of slavery. And so, even after becoming a state, passed laws like sundown laws and lash laws that created real punitive crimes to punish Black folks, Brown folks, Indigenous folks for living in the state. So, all of that built up into the moment where I, in 2009, My very first day in Oregon, experienced discrimination and lost access to housing. The fundamental thing that I needed as a trauma survivor, as a survivor of child abuse, the very first thing that I needed to be able to rebuild my life was taken from me immediately because of the color of my skin. It was shocking. And I didn't even at the moment realize how big of a deal that was. And so, you know, came to Portland and was in a shelter and was surrounded by youth from just diversity of experiences, folks who were homeless because of coming out of foster care, folks who had mental health challenges, folks who were, you know, drug addicts, folks who were human trafficked, folks who were LGBTQ and kicked out of the houses. But, you know, the thing that we had in common was that all of us were too young in our lives to have ever made any kind of decision or mistake to justify why we were without options, why we're stuck in a shelter. But it gave me space to finally figure out who I was, to figure out how to have some independence and to figure out my own life journey. And I was fortunate to have access to housing services, to job training services, to education, to actually define my own future. And that gave me hope for healing in my life. It was not easy. And I know that I'm very lucky at, you know, to be 30 years old and to have had the last 15 years since the time that my father left my life to find healing. A lot of folks don't get that. And the reason why is because our country has stigmatized healing. It has stigmatized folks talking about trauma and hurt, even though trauma is truly a universal experience where every single person in this country has experienced trauma in some way. Trauma is persistent. Trauma isn't just the moment of injury. Someone who has been shot before, they're going to have PTSD from being shot for decades. Someone who was abused as a kid, someone who experienced domestic violence from their significant other. These are traumas that you're going to experience years and years after that initial incident happened. But we don't talk about that. And that's so critical that we are talking about that on an individual level, because that's also gonna help us have a lens when we start talking about systemic injustices like slavery. The fact that we can't even talk about the shock waves and lingering impacts of trauma in our individual lives is narrowing our vision so that we can't even look at the shock waves and lingering impacts of traumas that have happened on systemic level. And so for me, it hits home because reparations is not just a political issue. It is a personal issue. And that is the work that we do for Brown Hope. And I say that to really try to hit the point home. I live in Oregon, again, a state that didn't have slavery. I live, well, slavery in the typical US context. I live in Portland, which is the whitest major city of its size in the entire United States. And I can be here with you today and say that as a queer black kid living on the streets of Portland, that I found healing and I found community. It was not an easy journey, but it was a journey that is possible. And I want to make sure that every single person has that same opportunity for healing and community.
1: There's been so many mic drop moments, (laughs) but what you just did was really bridge that disconnect for me. And I really appreciate you going there and sharing your experiences because I think that's what we need to remember is that when we talk about policy change, you know, we, Sasha and I talk on the show about how change comes in two directions, right? The bottom up, the internal work, and then these structural things that have to come and they have to meet in the middle for us to be making sustainable change. And what you just did was help me understand that it's not just, you know, is it all Black people or just descendants of slavery? Is it coming from white pockets? Who But it's about this internal work that we all want to do to recover from legacies of trauma, the trauma that we still face because of all of this. And that's the meeting in the middle that we're looking for and why we need to really examine this idea of reparations, because it does complement all the work that we want to do to raise thriving human beings in our culture as communities and as a nation together. So thank you for that so, so much.
2: Yeah, and I have to emphasize strongly, we have to practice patience and grace, and that is very hard because every single day we are seeing people die. And my city right now, Portland, is experiencing about a 200% increase in gun violence in the last year, and that's saddled with a 250% increase in gun violence that is impacting Black Portlanders specifically. So we are the ones directly impacted. I remember. Brown Hope, which is still a baby nonprofit. We were just founded three years ago. And it was really funny that when I founded it, again, living in Portland and used to these conversations happening very slowly, our very first program, we were really interested on, about this concept of reparations and finding innovative ways to raise awareness of the topic and advance the conversation. And we launched an event that was called the Reparations Happy Hour. And it ended up in the New York Times. It was like in CNN and Newsweek. It actually ended up in international news. We did radio segments with, in Ireland and Canada. And it was really funny because when I started that thing, you know, there was no press release. We weren't trying to get this on a national stage. I was like, hey, how can we start sparking and inspiring this conversation on reparations in Portland? And we had this idea of reparations happy hour because we live in a city that is not very diverse. And yet, I also don't want to erase the fact that Black, Brown, and Indigenous people, we live here. And when we talk about the fact that we are the whitest place, it sounds like we're white only, but we're not. You know, I literally in my life, every single day, interacting with dozens of Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks, especially in East Portland and East County, where you're seeing some census tracts looking like L.A. So there are diverse places in our communities. And yet we still experience great racial disparities. And so we created Reparations Happy Hour because it is very traumatizing to live in a place where it is hard to have connection. So not only are you dealing with the trauma of systemic racism, you also don't have, like in other places like New York and Chicago and L.A., you don't have peers, you can't just go down the street and talk to a neighbor who experiences the trauma that you do, it is much harder to have the same level of connection and social support because there's fewer of us here. And so we create a reparations happy hour as a space for black, brown, and indigenous folks to come together to build power to build community and to collectively heal from the impacts of racism. And you know, in Portland, we've had spaces like that. We've had meet and greets. We've had uh, special clubs and peer groups for, you know, only black, brown indigenous people. And I'd been a part of those. I'd helped create spaces like that, but I also knew that wasn't enough, and that was something that really was unsettling for me. These were folks who were taking time away from work, taking time away from family, taking time away from other healing activities, to build this space, to build this support. And what were our allies doing? What were racially privileged folks doing? They were sitting on their butts. They were probably, I don't know, watching Bridgerton or The Walking Dead or whatever. And, you know, often in Portland, it's like, you know, even for folks who want to be a part of racial justice, there's this privileged paralysis of like, I don't know what to do. How can I get involved? And I said, you know what? We need to continue to make these spaces for healing, but we need to have white folks show up and participate. And with Reparations Happy Hour, we asked folks to show up by staying home and opening up their wallets. And so we said, in the spirit of reparations, donate whatever you can, and we will distribute these dollars to people who are attending and who are participating and are co-creating the space for healing. And we're distributing these funding in recognition of the actual work that they're doing. We're talking about a two-hour commitment every month. That is time. That is work. And if you really want to see... Oregon, to to have a different future, a diverse, prosperous, healthy future, much different than what we had in the 1850s. You can't just sit home and wonder what you can do. You have to take action. And that action doesn't always mean that you're in the space, you're with those folks, you know, that you are, you know, on the front lines. Sometimes it just means leveraging your privilege. I like saying it's passing your baton of privilege forward. And both the small and big ways. So we found a way to do it on a sustainable thing that you can do on a monthly basis. You can chip in $10, $50, whatever, on a monthly basis, and we can give that to Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks who are doing that long-term work. It was interesting when the event went national. A lot of folks read the headlines and the newspapers, they got it wrong. They kept saying that at Reparations Happy Hour in Portland, white people were playing for black people's drinks and that was not (laughs) happening. We were making a space for us to build power, for us to have healing. We are still doing that work. We rebranded the event and called it Power Hour, but we are still distributing and we're asking for money in the spirit of reparations. We now give $35 to every attendee. We are actually now doing it on a weekly basis. Uh, COVID hasn't stopped us. We've moved over completely virtually to Zoom. We have about 150 people who attend every single week. We have uh, guest speakers who are presenting on a diversity of topics from gardening to owning a small business to policy reform. We're building that community of solidarity and support. We're doing that in the spirit of reparations. And we're doing that in Portland. We're doing that in Oregon and a place that has a very unique history of racism that it needs to atone for. And it's such a positive thing. I don't know if you know this, but I was on the Tucker Carlson show when we first did the Reparations Happy Hour and he commended me. You should watch it. It was a very weird interview where it was very hard for him to try to insult me or jab me. Literally by the end, he did call me a con artist, but he said, this was a great idea and I fully support it. You know, And to me, that does speak to the hope That we can't advance reparations that are bringing people from entrenched (laughs) political divides together to find a way forward. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be messy. But I do believe that we can push this conversation forward in a way that doesn't make people feel like they're punished, but it makes people feel like they are a part of something exciting, energizing, and new. That takes patience. You know, I could have given up in 2018 when those headlines came out and folks were saying this isn't reparations and. $10 is insulting. There are folks who critique HR 40 because, you know, folks want to see 6 trillion, 14 trillion, whatever number they want to see it happen now. And HR 40 doesn't give a dime to black people today. But we know that the arc of justice, like I said earlier, we have to continue to be pushing down on that arc. We have to be moving the levers of justice, but we have to do that with patience and grace. I've seen that happen in our work. And I hope that we can continue with help of folks like you to inspire a national movement of healing. Mic drop.
1: Love it. Thank you so, so much for your time, your vision, your work, and really sort of breaking open for me this idea of what reparations can be and how to think about it in a way that's not the way that it's necessarily conveyed in the media right now. I think this gives me hope and understanding in a different way. So I really, really thank you for taking the time to- share this with us today.
2: Thank you. And you know, I'll just make one final point. Again, reparations is something that every single one of us can find a way to participate in. I talked about Evanston, Illinois before, uh, Asheville, North Carolina has you know, passed unanimously a policy on reparations. We've seen universities who've passed reparations. I think it was Chase Bank, you know, they did reparations as well. Reparations is something that you can look at in your daily life. You can look at it or the place that you work. You can look at it with your local government. Uh, Let's have these conversations on a local level, on a national level. We can all find ways to be a part of the solution.
1: Thank you so much. If people want to find you, where do they find you?
2: So, yes, please check out our website, brownhope.org. Again, we are a racial justice nonprofit, and we are focused on ways to inspire our collective healing. We're out here. With full vulnerability, with our hearts, with our minds, with our voices, finding ways for people of all backgrounds, all racial identities, to be a part of the solution for racial justice. Please check us out on our website, brownhope.org We're on Insta, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, not yet TikTok, but who knows, maybe someday. Uh, but also, I want to do a shameless plug. We also have a podcast called Your Neighborhood Black Friends, where we talk about great. Conversations like this, we talk with folks of all different identities around how can we build community, how can we learn from each other, and foster healing. Check out your neighborhood Black friends as well, and be a part of the conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you. You're still here, learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news, we have a brand new book that's available for pre-order, so find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women podcast and Twitter at DWW podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.